This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. To find out more about our programs or to make a donation, visit us on the web at www.nczencenter.org. So I think a few of you know I'd like to talk today about abortion, more from a Zen perspective, if there is such a thing as a Zen perspective on abortion. It's a topic that's been on my mind for some time, especially since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And um, as many of you know, I don't usually tackle topics of social um, social issues in Taisho um, for various reasons, one of which is I think many people come to the Zendo uh, to kind of get a break from all of that. It, and I think many of us are, are just bombarded with information and so connected with what's happening in the world that we, we just understandably need to, to not go there. Uh, uh, and yet, uh, our Buddhist practice has always been about you know, finding our center, our refuge within our daily life, within the the, the world. And so um, at times, especially in this day and age, I think it's important to bring up issues um, and use them as practice. You know, so, you know, I invite you today to, to maybe notice internal reactions. Maybe you'll agree with some of what I say, maybe you won't. A few years ago, I gave a talk in the Zendo about something that somebody really took issue with. And, um, I was accused of selling my students short of the true Dharma. Uh, but that's okay. Um, you know, um, purity um, and so-called true Dharma has no place in Zen. So, okay. With all those, uh, well, one more caveat here, one more preamble, is that I am by no means an expert in abortion. And I have opinions like everybody else. And um, so I do engage with this topic with a sense of somewhat of hesitation, knowing that it is um, a very um, contentious and, and thorny issue. And it can stir up um, many feelings on both sides or on all the sides. So above all, in that vein, um, I think the most important thing outside of opinions, outside of um, where we fall on the issue, um, the most important thing is compassion and empathy for women. That has to be the beginning, the middle, and the end of this issue, in my opinion. They, women in general, bear the responsibility for financial, emotional, um, the responsibility uh, in, in, this, in this important issue. So you could argue fundamentally that the 
issue of abortion is a moral issue. I looked online in at the latest Pew Research poll, and it said, this was done in 2021, it said that 48% of Americans believed that there are some situations where abortion is morally wrong, even though that majority, that uh, the majority of that forty-eight percent still believed it should remain legal. Only twenty-eight percent of Americans said that abortion is always morally acceptable, or is not a moral issue at all. So that's kind of what I mean by it's a moral issue, meaning that in most to most people, um, it is. Um, a moral issue on some level. Of course, we need to be clear about what morality is, right? It is um, from both from a conventional point of view and from a Buddhist and Zen perspective. Um, the dictionary defines, I always go to the dictionary, uh, the dictionary defines morality as principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong. But Buddhist or um, Buddhist morality or ethics, it, it uses a different measuring stick, so to speak, than good and bad. It, it doesn't get involved in good and bad. It's not about right versus wrong, but rather what is it that reduces suffering? That is its measuring stick. The Zen masters have always warned practitioners not to fall into right and wrong. Recognizing how easy and how destructive it is when we're caught in notions, any, any of our ideas about things, rather than seeing things as they are. Because when we're attached to our notions of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, we, the, the basic thing is that we risk being unable to respond to what is appropriate in the moment. We fail to meet who or what is in front of us when we are caught in right and wrong. The, the sixth... <clears throat> excuse me, one person in the waiting room here. The sixth ancestor, Huineng, um, said this... Good friends, the deluded person may be motionless in body, meaning meditation, maybe a meditation practitioner. But if they open their mouth and speak of right and wrong, the strength and weaknesses, the good and bad of others, this is to go against the way. If you concentrate on the mind or concentrate on purity, this is to impede the way. And so I often speak about the necessity of cultivating a flexibility of mind. And it doesn't mean that we don't have principles, it doesn't mean that we don't have guidelines, but we have to ask ourselves over and over again, do those principles or do my ideas, do they uh, impede my ability to meet this always changing world? And so in Zen, we do have ethical guidelines. 
both the teach those the, the teachings, uh, the precepts, and the Eightfold Noble Path. But those teachings fundamentally are based in the intrinsic emptiness of all things, of self and other. And the precepts themselves are ultimately empty. Nothing has any intrinsic reality apart from the causes and conditions that it arises within. All things are co-arising. But even in each moment of arising, in each moment of coming into being, there's also a change. So you could say as there is not that things change, but that there is only change. There's nothing but change. Nothing's fixed. And studying that is perhaps the most important part of the precepts and perhaps the issue of abortion itself. It's important because, as I spoke about a few weeks ago, it's tempting, especially with difficult subjects like abortion, for us to... to it's, it's tempting to look for a rule. It's tempting to look for something that we can rely on or attach to. But we know how easily that can turn into dogma, into rules that be, then become institutionalized, they become codified, and when they do, they very, become very difficult to change. Um, the other night I was watching a Nova special about this ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal last year. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It's one of the largest uh, shipping container uh, ship uh, vessels in the world. They just keep getting larger and larger, pushing the boundaries of what can be manageable. And as they were exploring what uh, forces were responsible for getting this ship stuck, in the canal blocking traffic, a lot of the world's shipping traffic that goes through there for, I think it was over a week that this vessel was stuck and how much effort it took to move that vessel. And so like that ship, I think of how our institutions, of how our laws, and how our unexamined beliefs can how easily they can become so unresponsive, so unwieldy. And then, ironically, the very guidelines that were meant to, intended to reduce harm, can actually cause harm. And so, like that ship, I think we need to be careful about becoming like that in our own beliefs. Um, the Buddha said, just as a goldsmith tests gold by burning, cutting, and rubbing it, so we must examine our own, or his, he said, my own words. By teaching, he said, is not a philosophy. It is the result of direct experience. My teaching is a means of practice, not something to hold on to. My teaching is like a raft, used to cross a river. Only a fool would carry the raft around after they had already reached the other shore of liberation. And so when we study the first grave precept, which is not to kill but to cherish all life, which is most often the precept cited when we're talking about abortion, we study it, of course, from the literal perspective, meaning that all killing is 
seen as going against this precept. But we also study from the Mahayana Buddhist perspective, which is the greatest good for the greatest number. And really what that boils down to is that it's about harm reduction. And we also study the precepts, this precept from the perspective of one mind, that there is nothing to kill, no one to be killed, no one that does the killing. But this we have to be careful with, because as Robert Aiken wrote, the absolute position when isolated isolates us from the human condition. Of course, much of the debate about abortion centers on the question of when life begins. Is an embryo or a fetus even life? You know, does life begin at conception? Does it begin when there's a heartbeat? Does it begin when uh, life can sustain itself outside of the womb? So we can ask this question of like, what is life? I was, I was just considering this question of what is life, I thought about this sort of hypothetical being uh, interested in space exploration. And we all know that there are, the Mars rovers have been going around and there have been these sort of times where there have been these uh, questions, you know, did we find water on Mars or this kind of thing. And I imagined, and, I, and, and it may very well happen that one day, uh, NASA announces that we found cells, you know, on Mars. And you can, see, you can just hear life, the headlines, life has been found on Mars, can't you? And yet many people don't consider a zygote, these single-cell organisms inside of the womb, uh, or even an embryo, life, understandably. It can't survive outside the womb. But then again, we're all, in, we're all dependent. We're all interdependent. No life can exist on its own, can it? This is the fundamental teaching of interdependence. The, the Buddha said, without this, there can't be that. And so traditionally in Buddhism, Life is thought to begin at conception. But we have to then ask, well, what is, when does conception happen? What is that about? Does conception happen at a certain point, a moment in time, when one thing happens or another? These are all things just to consider. You know. In many Asian countries, when somebody is born, they're considered one year old as soon as they are born. And we know from modern science that a person's brain isn't fully developed until they're in their 20s. So what if we took the opposite approach? Let's say that we are a fully formed human being. And then let's say that we lose a limb. And then another limb. Maybe we lose our sense of smell, which of course many people have experienced during COVID. 
What if we lose our eyesight? What if we lose our memories? At what point do we stop being a full human being? So what constitutes a person is not a simple question. I'm often reminded um, through this practice that we are processes. We are not products. We are constantly becoming and we are constantly dying. In traditional Buddhist uh uh, from a Buddhist perspective, death occurs well beyond, well before. The process of dying occurs well before what we know medically is considered death. This is all to say that both sides of the issue, when they focus on when life begins, miss the mark. In a way, it reminds me of, of in, in the Buddhist time, he was often asked, these very philosophical, metaphysical questions like this. Like, when does life begin? And um, he would always refuse to answer those questions because he said those were the wrong questions. He said, I'll only ask, answer questions if they lead to the reduction or the end of suffering. And so in that way... Um, you could think of when when does life begin as more of a distraction than a question that it works towards the end of suffering. So what is what is the question to be asked then? Right? What question do we focus on? Again, in examining the first precept, we acknowledge that to be alive means to take life. We can't avoid it. And so it becomes more about what will reduce suffering. In the debate about abortion, when someone says to protect the unborn life is the utmost priority, you know, that really misses or ignores the reality of how much suffering that position can cause to others. Right? When we think, for example, of how stretched our resources are on this planet, how many people who are born suffer from starvation, from poverty, from trauma, from emotional neglect, from abuse. But then on the other side, to say that having an abortion is without consequence ignores the laws of causation, interdependence. It's not simply about um, taking that potential life away, but we might ask, what does abortion do to the mind of the woman who goes through the procedure and the mind of the person that is performing the procedure? Because the stakes are so high and the right to abortion is so under threat, there can understandably be an attempt by some to downplay the emotional impact that abortion can could have. And I emphasize could here. Admitting that there could be grief or guilt or other difficult emotions can feel threatening because that could mean that we are admitting that it is morally wrong. 
But the reality is that even doing what we know is right can leave us feeling terrible or unsettled. We can all think of times that we've made a decision. We know it's right. We know it's what called for. It's what's called for. Nonetheless, it wasn't easy. Right? Too often when we're faced with difficult decisions, we can simply try to put that complexity out of mind or others can try to encourage us to do that as well. Don't give it a second thought. Don't worry about it. Right? You did the right thing. But we all know how well that works. It doesn't. In my experience, unprocessed guilt and unprocessed shame are one of the most toxic forces that can keep one stuck in their life. I've seen it time and time again. Sometimes these painful feelings only surface much later. Sometimes we see a situation from a perspective that we hadn't considered before. New information becomes available to us. And that can open us up to a pain that we hadn't considered before. The point in saying all this is to say that if we don't have avenues to help somebody process that potential pain, to help us move through feelings like that, then, or if we feel kind of a pressure to stick to our guns, to ignore those feelings, then that can just encourage a culture of denial of justification, of trying to just push through. And so as Buddhists, I think we're called to recognize that, that really the issue is around the complexity of the situation. And our job as Buddhists, as practitioners, is to be able to hold that complexity instead of, uh, you know, kind of trying to avoid that complexity through black and white thinking. And I think this is really where Buddhism has something to offer in the conversation around abortion. I can't think of anything more powerful than zazen, the practice of stilling the mind to help, first of all, to help somebody make important decisions. You know, I often, myself, come to the zendo or sit at home when I have something important to do or some important decision I'm unclear about, that sitting itself can be a way of bringing clarity to a situation. But it also can help us weather those mind states, those feeling states that can come up without resorting to reactive behavior, to, to either clinging or pushing away. So there's also the power of ceremony, of ritual. Ceremony can be incredibly helpful for some people. I think of the simple act of reciting the repentance gatha, the repentance verse. Of course, it's a way of working with mistakes or of missteps. But even when there's nothing, there isn't anything that we can think of, that we can point to, that we did wrong, so to speak. It's simply an acknowledgement of the complexity, the unseen forces, and the acknowledgement of our responsibility to all beings. In Soto Zen, 
the phrase, one continuous mistake is often used. And this is often attributed to Dogen, but really what it comes from is a quote from the Shobogenzo where he says this. He says, stepping forward is a mistake, stepping backwards is also a mistake. Taking one step is a mistake, taking two steps is also a mistake. Therefore, one mistake after another mistake. Whatever we say is a mistake. What does that mean? We can't know all the ways that our actions impact others. But we know they do. We do. We do. They often create harm without us even knowing about it. And so we take responsibility for what is seen and, and for what is not seen. So in Japanese Buddhism, what they've done is developed over years and years, developed a ceremony, a powerful ceremony called Maizuko Kuyo, which means a water baby ceremony. During the ceremony, there's chanting. Um, there is chanting in front of the Jizo Bodhisattva, which is on the altar today. And often, um, before the ceremony begins, uh, the woman or women or family members will sew small clothing, hats or bibs, often red. You'll see these statues throughout Japan, all over Japan, these stone statues. There are thousands of them everywhere. And they are all um, dressed in these clothes that are uh, represent the clothing of a child. So the figure of Jizo Bodhisattva is not only the protector of children, but also in the ceremony represents the child itself or the fetus or the unborn. My hope is I and mean, this is really the, I think, a lot of where I'm hoping to go with this is um, my hope is that our Sangha develops a, a, a similar ceremony so that not only for Sangha members, but for the community in, at large, that we can have an offering way, a way to help women and families navigate this issue if they choose. Because our medical establishment, you know, is more often than not emotional, emotionally sterile. I went to the doctor the other day, and I don't think he made eye contact for at least five minutes into the visit. You know, he comes right in and sits down at the computer and looks at the computer and says, oh, you're so-and-so, you know, can give him, you know, my name not even looking at me. How many of us feel cared for by our doctors and other healthcare providers? And so from a Buddhist point of, point of view, as I said, the mind state of someone who undergoes a procedure like abortion is primary, as well as the mind state of a person who performs the procedure. So I would argue that no one wants, no one wants abortion, even from a strictly medical point of view. It's not an easy procedure; it can often involve pain. People who are 
anti-abortion often argue that bearing a child and putting it up for adoption is the way to deal with unwanted pregnancies, right? But we know how large of a discrepancy there is between that rhetoric and what is actually supported. How many of those people, how many people in general are willing to make the sacrifices needed to financially support those children? How many are willing to take those into their own home? Not many, I'm afraid. How many are willing to invest in education, contraception, and the necessary social social supports? And so Kaplow Roshi once wrote this along the same lines. He said, These people rage against the, quote, murderous mind of those who would deny the right to life of the unborn child, insisting that since only God can give life, only he can take it away. But he says, it may be asked, are those same individuals just as vociferous in demanding a decent life for those already born who are under undernourished and exploited? I, I would say that until um, we as a country collectively deal with our un- inability and our unwillingness to care for each other and to provide for those who need it, we will continue to struggle with this issue. This is the karmic baggage of our inability and unwillingness to care for each other. The contentiousness, the political division that we're experiencing in this country is the result of our own karma. So to come back to the beginning, I think the most important thing then is to not only feel and develop and feel that empathy, that compassion for the complexity of someone facing a decision like this. At times, again, at times it may not be complex. It may just be, this is what has to be done. No second thoughts. But at times there may be that complexity and so people often wonder, well, what is, what do you think? Um, and so I would say that I can't help but fall on the, the side that we have to remain, uh, it has to remain a choice, right? It has to. Keeping reproductive choice open for all women. 